Can I uh, ask you to just keep your Bibles open to the Bible reading, Genesis 2, and also the pull-outs in your bulletins and insert and with the sermon outline. And this will help us to follow this afternoon's sermon. Uh, next thing is to let's go to God together and pray that God will speak to us. Let's go. Speak, O Lord, and incline our ears to your words. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Thanks so much. Now, as we begin, uh, let me just confess that I am an, an addict. I'm addicted to coffee. Okay? So on average, I drink about three to four cups a day. And so recently, when our coffee machine at home broke down, uh, I panicked. And so we scrambled to try to find the user manual to try to do some troubleshooting. But unfortunately, it had been misplaced. And so I went online to try to identify this machine. Right? So I went to the website uh, and tried to find exactly what model is it. And I downloaded the user manual. Thank God for Google, because it makes it so easy now to find instructions for everything and anything. I also managed to find a series of instruction manuals, right, books for those who want to own a dog, right, to getting married, owning a house, having a baby, right, and then the baby grows up into a toddler. How do you handle this child? And then the toddler grows into a teen that's taller than you. Now, new parents may be just as helpless as we were in 2010. What do we do with a baby who wouldn't stop crying and yet can't tell us what he or she wants? Well, this is why we need family fellowship, right? For parents with their first child. But I learned also that there is a lot of wisdom out there. So there's, there's, there are instruction manuals that tell us what to do and what not to do with babies. Right? So for example, do lift the baby gently with, under the head and the bottom. Don't lift them by the head. Common sense. Right, don't play, play with the baby gently. Don't throw her into the air. Right, do gentle exercises. Don't let him do weights. Dry the baby with a towel. Don't throw him into the clothes dryer. Okay, these are common sense, but some people need to be told. Eh? Well, there's a manual for everything because, you see, life is hard. And we're often clueless about what to do, how we are to live as humans and about our roles in, in life. But rather than learning from books and from the world about who we are and why we exist, I suggest it's, it's far better to hear from the Maker himself. How did God, our Creator, make us? And what is his true purpose for us? Genesis 2, in a way, is like God's owner's guide, instruction manual for humanity, both male and female to help us to see who we are and what we were originally created for. Now, if you follow the outline, first we will be looking at the goodness of God as our maker and his generous provision for, for humanity. Then we'll look at the goodness of man created in God's image to be a worker and a ruler. Next, we see the goodness of woman or women made from man to be a fitting partner and helper for him. Lastly, we see the goodness of marriage as a binding union, and it points to a greater and higher mystery. From the very first verse of Genesis up to chapter 2, verse 3, 
we have seen how God creates the world in an orderly fashion over six days. And on day six, he created human beings in his image as the crowning glory over his work. Then he saw that everything that he had made was very good and rested from his work of creation. In chapter 2, verse 4, we will read together. Let's read this verse. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This verse, chapter 2, verse 4, sums up everything that we've read so far. Chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 3, the whole creation account. And look at the words in yellow, the heavens and the earth. It is a figure of speech that states two opposites, but really it represents everything in between. So for example, our marriage vows says, uh, for better and for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. This doesn't mean that I only love my wife June when she's sick or when I'm healthy. right? It just means in all seasons of life, we are to love, to cherish and to be loyal to each other not just in times of extremities. This verse, chapter 2, verse 4, also introduces a new section in Genesis. So Pastor Chris showed us last week, right, that the word generations, or in the Hebrew, tolidoth, it is used 10 times in Genesis as a section marker. So apart from the prologue, right, in chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 3, there are actually 10 chapters in Genesis, according to the writer. Each begins with the word generations, and there are five times in each half of Genesis. This first section or chapter of Genesis runs from chapter 2, verse 4, what we're reading today, all the way to the end of chapter 4, because the next beginning, the, the next uh, gener generations is in chapter 5, verse 1. And so this section that we are opening today includes the accounts of creation of men and women here, the temptation and fall of humanity in chapter 3, and also Cain's murder of Abel in chapter 4. In verse 4 itself, there's this pattern. Right, this pattern, next slide. This pattern that is called a chiastic structure. So it, it goes, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that God made the earth and the heavens. Right? So very often we are, we are used to say uh, the heavens and the earth. That's the usual sequence. But here in this verse, in the second half, it is being reversed. Right? Heavens and the earth. But now it's the earth before the heavens. And this may indicate a shift in the perspective. Right? From the heavenly cosmic perspective in chapter 1, now we come to the earthly or the localized perspective in chapter 2. From the panoramic view of God's creation, the writer now zooms in to humanity in the garden. And this means for us that Genesis 2 isn't chronologically following on from Genesis 2, Genesis 1. So it's not Genesis 1 happened first and then Genesis 2. But rather, Genesis 2 describes for us the same creation events of humans, this time from an, a, an earthly perspective. So let's read together from verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plants of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. 
and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. See, these verses describe for us the early days of creation. No bush or shrub has grown, and no small plants that requires cultivation has sprung up yet, because there was still no rain and there was no gardener. Right? Man wasn't created yet. And yet God himself was able to sustain the land through a mist or spring that comes up of the ground to irrigate it. We will look at the creation of humans in verse 7 later, but right after creating man in verse 8, we are told that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he puts the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Last year, uh, my family, we moved, so we rented out our flats in Chai Chi. And so we had to replace the air conditioners because they were 10 years old and they were not functioning well. We fixed wa the water heater that had not been working for a number of years, but we just left it. Right? We had to make sure that everything was in working condition so that our tenants, they wouldn't encounter faulty lights and broken appliances. Likewise, this habitat that God has given to man and placed him in, it was no arid dry land, but it was a fertile paradise. It was planted by God himself. The trees were made to spring up by God, and every tree there was pleasant to the eye, to the sight, and good for food. God was no stingy landlord who served his tenants with the minimal standard. He, did, he provided the best for him. God also ensured that man's work would be light and easy. How do we know? Well, in verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Why four rivers? Well, four rivers to water the entire land of the ancient world. And we found that there were gold and precious gems found in abundance. Work will be such a blessing and joy in such a place, right? So now imagine for me, uh, tomorrow as you go back to the office, right, you discover that there's a change, there's a miracle. The photocopier will now no longer break down. It will never run out of paper. And now there is no more office politics. Everyone cooperates with you, and you get your work done by 3 p.m. every day. Wonderful, right? Isn't it? Or perhaps imagine a household where the kids never throw tantrums. You go home and they always have finished their homework without being asked. And the dust never settles so that you needn't ever vacuum or sweep. Wow, miracle. How can this be? How about the pay? How about the pay? Well, the salary comes in whenever you need it, as much as you want. Huh? Cannot be, right? Sounds too good to be true. But it was so in the beginning. Right? Read with me, verse 16. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Look at the words in yellow. You may surely eat and you shall surely die. God is just as deadly serious with his provisions for us as with his prohibition. Everything that we ever needed and ever will need were provided by God in the beginning. Now, some people say that the durian is actually the forbidden fruit, right? Because after the fall, it grew thorns. Let's say, let's say that you have a fatal allergy to durians. God forbid, but let's say, huh? You, you, you eat durian, you will die. Now, and all the fruits that you also desire are spread out before you as a buffet. So we have the next slide. Okay? And this buffet is free of charge for you to take at will. The sweetest mango, the richest banana, the juiciest watermelon, and the biggest, insert your favourite fruit, all are equally pleasant to the sight and good for food. Will you still insist on eating that forbidden durian even if it kills you? Will you still blame God for depriving you? It shouldn't be, right? And such was the goodness of God, such is the goodness of God as humanity's generous provider. Next, in verse 7, we also see the goodness of man as he was first created. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. See, in the formation of man, God made man from earthly elements, from the dust of the ground, which in the Hebrew is Adama, and that is how man got his name, Adam. Have you seen diagrams like this? Diagrams, next slide. Diagrams that break down the elements and the compounds that the human body is made up of. And so we are told that 99% of the human body comprises of six elements. And we are made up of approximately 62% water, 6% minerals, 16% fat. And that's on average. Yeah, I've got slightly more than you. 16% protein and 1% carbohydrates. That is all there is to us. Nothing special. But it cannot be, right? We must be more than that. Otherwise, you and I will be mere animals. You see, God also breathed into humans, into the man, his nostrils, the breath of life. And this word breath is used only for God and for human beings in the Bible, not for animals. So it is both this earthly body and this divine breath in us that makes you and I living beings made in the image of God. Now, look at the neighbour next to you now. Turn and look. Give you permission to look at your neighbours. Can you imagine this person, or that per this person, he or she, is made in God's image? Right? Doesn't look like it, right? Looks like a tired person. But this person is actually God, God's image. You and I are more than flesh and blood. We have got a moral conscience in us. We have a spiritual appetite a capacity to know and worship God that animals simply don't. So don't ever despise yourselves and don't look down on others. We are formed in God's image. The psalmist says in Psalm 8, and Pastor Adrian read that to us, 
that God made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. He has given him dominion over the works of his hands and puts all things under his feet. So we can conclude from these verses that God has given humanity both dignity and dominion, right? D and D, right? to represent God and to rule the world on his behalf. Right? So we are given D and D to do R and R. God commanded humanity in, verse, in chapter 1 as well, very much like this, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and to have dominion over the rest of creation. So humanity was created to be ruling the world on God's behalf, to be ruling over His creation. So we are not to be its harsh masters, squeezing every ounce of natural resources and trashing the environment for our own pleasure. No, man's true purpose is stated in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. We are placed in the world to do two things, to work and to keep the world for God. Both action words here, or verbs, they are used later to describe the role of the priests in temple worship. And so it could be that the, the Garden of Eden may be the first sanctuary. For man to work is to worship God, is to revere Him and to render service to Him. And so, brothers and sisters, we must change our perspective on work. Work is not a punishment for sin. It is the hardship at work that will be a curse later on and not work itself. So can we not go to work on Monday, tomorrow, cursing and swearing and just looking forward to Friday again? Now we can also look forward to Wednesday, right? We can invite our friends and go ourselves to be reminded of God's will for us at work in our marketplace ministry lunchtime talks. But overall, work is actually a good thing from Monday to Friday, every single day. It's a good thing that God gives to us so that we may eat of His fruit. And God Himself was a worker. He worked to create the world. He worked to plant the garden before He puts men to work it and to keep it as our worship of Him. The word for work also has the meaning of service, serving. And this means that man wasn't to use and abuse creation, but to be a good steward and care for the creation. To keep the garden, the other verb, is to protect it from intrusion. And this was something that the man would later fail to do when he allows the serpents to enter and to lead him and his wife astray. So rather than trashing creation as his possessor, Humanity ought to be treasuring it as its protector. See, such is the perfect beauty and the utter goodness of man created to be God's serving ruler over his very good creation. And next we come to see uh, in verse 18 onwards the goodness of woman as a fitting partner for the man. Let's read this together from verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. 
And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now in Genesis, so far, God saw everything that he created and it was always good, good and very good. Now, for the first time, something was not good in God's sight. And what is it? Well, what is not good is that man should be alone. So is it because of loneliness? Because the man has no companion? It cannot be, right? Because God was with the man and then the livestock and the beasts and the birds were with him as well. And yet somehow the whole puzzle was incomplete. There was one small but glaring missing piece. It wasn't good because there wasn't a helper fit for him. A helper fit for him. This phrase is found in verses 18 and 20. And it means that there was no corresponding partner to the man. There was no counterpart who was equal and adequate to help him with his God-given work. God isn't man's equal because he's God, we are not. And man is above the animals to rule over them. As the animals were brought before the man to name, there wasn't found any like him, someone who could help him in his God-given mandate. And the mandate was found in chapter 1, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the animals. Your your dog and your cat cannot help you to, to do this work. It will take another human who is like the man and yet different to him to fulfill God's mission. Now, it must be qualified and mentioned here that the word helper here, it does not mean someone who is lower or inferior in any way. Just like your domestic helper isn't inferior to you, to us. Although she may be disadvantaged back home, and that's why she had to come here overseas to work for us. They deserve the privacy, space, food, rest, everything that you want and need. They need it too. A helper can be of the same value and status, and even more, since God himself was also called Israel's helper in Exodus 18 and in the Psalms. So how does God solve the problem of the man's aloneness? Let's read verse 21 together. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. See, the man names the woman after himself. The word for woman is isha in the Hebrew. And it sounds like, it's not exactly the same word, but it sounds like ish, the word for man. Isha was taken from man, Ish. The naming of woman may show that the man has authority over her, just as he names the animals and exercises rule over them. But why is it that the woman was made this way, from the rib that was taken out of the man? Famous Bible commentator Matthew Henry, and I'm told he's actually quoting Augustine, Matthew Henry observes this. He says, The woman was made of a rib, out of the sight of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, 
nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his sight to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Right? So not everyone will agree. It's a, it's a, it sounds very fantastic, right? But not everyone will agree that this was the reason why the man's reap was used by God to make the woman. But what is clear at least was that this woman was made from the same substance as the man. And so she's equal in essence and worth to Adam. She shares the same earthly body of dust, the same divine breath of life. She's of the same standing before God. And yet there was also a differentiation of roles. It is to the man to, that God gave the command first, right? And it's men who will be held chiefly responsible afterwards. The woman was to be his fitting helper or partner, without whom God's mission could not be fulfilled. Man as the working or serving ruler, and woman as the fitting helper or partner in God's creation, worshipping and serving God together. That was the original design and picture. And as God brought the woman to the man, he was like the first and proudest father of the bride. And the man, the first groom, couldn't help but break out into a song, a poem of praise. He says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Such pure joy and utter delight here. And some of us husbands here may have forgotten the romantic love that you used to write poems and you felt during courtship, right? and the marvel of seeing your beautiful wife on the wedding day itself. Is that why now we grumble to others about our wives behind their back? Is that why we feel resentment or even disdain for them? Maybe before the, the rush of Chinese New Year gets set in again, try to go out, go out on a date this week. Revisit the old places that you used to go during courtship, if they are still around, right? and see if you can rekindle that first love. So this is, a, this is where I need to set a reminder to myself. See again the goodness of woman, a fitting partner that God has given to men, so that we might together do the good work that He's given to us. So because it's good for the man and the woman to come together, we see the goodness of marriage as well in verse 23 onwards. Marriage is a binding union, a covenant instituted by God in its good purposes. So see the writer's comment in verse 24. Let's read this together. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. See, according to these verses, the marriage covenant or relationship is to be characterized by loyal love and faithful fidelity. All same words, actually. Loyal love and faithful fidelity. Living and holding fast, they are covenantal words, and they are used later to describe God's exclusive relationship with His people. And so for Israel to practice idolatry was really to commit adultery against God, her husband, to forsake her covenant with God, and to be united to pagan idols. Likewise, the man leaves his parents to hold fast or be united to his wife. Right? Not that the parents are the idols, 
right? But there's a, there's a forsaking of a close union between the parents and the children for the sake of forming another closer union between the husband and the wife. A man shall leave his father and mother. Marriage takes the spiritual living of one's parents and often, but not always, it takes a physical living as well. I say not always because some, some couples do choose to stay together with their parents and some couples today don't want to, but they are no choice. Right? It is stay with your parents at least until your BTO flat, your built-to-order flats get ready. But there has got to be some maturity from the point of marriage onwards. Right? For the couple to now make decisions together, to support themselves financially, and perhaps to do their own housework, rather than waiting for mom to come by in a week to pick up the laundry and to wash them and dry them for you. I see some, hear some clapping. But for Asian parents, right, we, we see our, kid, our children as kids until they get married, and for some even beyond that. So it might be hard for you to let a boy or a girl go, right? but emotionally and spiritually, our married children are now one with their husband or wife. We have to let go so that now they can experience that oneness and mutual loyalty in marriage. So if you really want what's best for your child, maybe don't go complaining to your son about your daughter-in-law behind her back. Don't sow seeds of discord out of your own insecurity. Both the husband and the wife have a part to play as well in pleading with our own parents. Right? But husbands have to take the lead to protect this marriage union. This union between men and women also means that the two become one flesh. And this means that it's a, it's a permanent and exclusive binding union with no third party or competitors allowed till death do us part. So in your office or among your friends, even in church, do watch out for that lingering liaison with that person that you're attracted to. Avoid alone time after work, after office hours, or in secluded places. And in today's term, right, even private text messages, text messages that you send to someone of the other sex, that you can't show to your God-given spouse. So brothers and sisters, if you are married, can you tell your wife or husband frankly about your attractions? And will the wife or husband promise to trust your spouse as they confess their attraction to you? Do not judge them. Do you have a free access to each other's phones and emails whenever you want? I believe that these are some things that will help us to guard your heart and strengthen your partnership in marriage to sanctify each other. Now, I must clarify that here I'm not saying that it's only married people who are complete or who will be able to fulfill God's purposes because God created each one of us individually in His image. We don't need another person to complete us, so if that's what you're looking for, it doesn't work that way. We don't need another person to complete us. We are already complete. And yet, collectively, as His church, we fulfill God's purposes and do His mission as both married and singers. We need one another, no matter what our status in life may be, whether we are single or married, divorced or widowed. See, this is the goodness of marriage. It is a picture of the union between God and His people, between Christ and His church. It's a binding union that God instituted for us 
in order that we might fulfill his good purposes. So in, in terms of our application, I suggest we'll be looking at three aspects. We're looking at men and women in relation to God, to each other, and finally to creation. So firstly, men and women in relation to God. We must recognize that we are God's creatures. We are made to worship Him and to serve His purposes. And in His goodness to us, God is no stingy taskmaster, but He's a generous and caring Father who has given you and I good things to enjoy. And so our obedience is to be based on trust and not fear, to be based on love and not mere duty. And since God created us to work and for work, each of us should be gainfully employed in work if God has so granted us with good health. Work is a part of our life worship of God. But it, because we are all workaholics, we also must sound the warning. Work must also be accompanied by rest, following the pattern of God in Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3. Rest, like work, is our worship of God. When we rest, we acknowledge that we are creatures. We acknowledge our creatureliness and we trust in God's gracious providence for us. But since the, ever since the fall of humanity, after Adam and Eve disobeyed God, we see that in two weeks' time from Genesis 3, since then, you and I struggle with a wholehearted worship of God and we struggle in our work for God. Work has become toilsome and painful for us. Or for some, it may become an idol in place of God. And God sent us help because we, we struggle with how we are to do this role in relation to God. Jesus came to do God's work as the second Adam, as the perfect image of the invisible God. And according to Paul in Colossians 1, in him that is Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus, the second and better Adam, he was able to obey God completely, and so he was able to do the work that God sent him to do, to reconcile everything, whether things on earth or in heaven, again, everything, to God and making peace with God. And the church that is thus now, redeemed by Jesus, we do God's given work of subduing the world and bringing it under God's rule. How do we do that? Well, chiefly by telling others about Jesus and what he's done. And that's something that we can think about as we go about visiting our relatives over the Chinese New Year. We can tell others about what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he has done. And we can also be the redeeming and sanctifying sorts in society. Now next, men and women in relation to each other. In Genesis 2, we see that men and women were created by God, right? And God created us different and separate. But there were only two genders, right? There was no ambiguity, there was no third gender. And so from here we can see that anything apart from this comes from the corruption of the creation through the fall, through our willful human sinfulness as well. And the church is to multiply and fill the earth so that there will be servants and the keepers to worship God and to do His purposes. 
So for this to happen, we will need godly marriages so that they will produce godly offspring for biological and nurturing growth. We also need godly ministers and servants of the gospel for the non-biological or evangelistic growth. So all the way from our children's church to our basic youths, to our adult DGs, everything play together a huge role to help us to reach out to our biological children, but also to help one another to reach out to our family and friends outside. But right now, what we do see is brokenness. Brokenness in our men and women relationships everywhere. So yesterday morning, Saturday, I woke up and usually I get my news on the phone. The first two articles that came in, I saw on the phone were this. The first one, Titus, wife of US Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Young says she was assaulted by her gynecologist. So read from part of the article. Mrs. Young said she was assaulted by Robert, Robert Hedden, a gynecologist in Manhattan, who has since been accused of sexual abuse by multiple patients. She said Hedden assaulted her in his exam room when she was seven months pregnant. I was dressed and ready to go, she told CNN. Then at the last minute, he kind of made up an excuse. He said something about, I think you, you might need a C-section. And he proceeded to grab me over to him and undress me and examine me internally, ungloved. What makes this man, what makes men everywhere think that women can be treated and abused in this way? The second article is titled, Getting into the Minds of the Men Who Hate Women, written by Professor Chong Xiao An from IMH. It was in yesterday's opinion section. It's worth reading and reflecting upon, even though I don't agree with everything. Right? Uh, so from the article I read, Musojuni is generally understood as anything that resembles prejudice, mistrust, dislike, and hatred towards women, which could extend to their demonization and dehumanization. And he quotes examples, sexual predation in the, in the movie industry, the rhetoric of Donald Trump, the brutal gang rape and murder of the Indian medical student Jyoti Singh in 2012. The world is confused. The world is chaotic in the men and women relationship. Men trampling over women, women resisting to submission of men. But the Bible itself cannot be clearer for us. Men and women are created in God's image and we are each given the same divine breath. Men are not to demonize or human, dehumanize women, but we are to treat women as equals in worth and dignity, not as inferior and for our exploitation. And so when we watch porn or we fantasize sexually, we think we do no harm. Right? Whether we are men or women, some of us may do that. But we are actually devaluing the other person and we are actually desecrating the image of God in him or her. And so this is the point where I think as a church and also uh, as men in general in society, we, need, we owe an apology to women, women whom we have spoken lightly to, we have spoken even sometimes sexually about, and we may have spoken things to them that we will not have said to another man. And this is where, as men, we have sinned. 
we need to apologize in our families, in the church, in society. And yet, while men and women are equal, we are equal in worth and dignity, yet there are also differences in the roles between the genders. In Genesis 2, we see that God's original purposes for men and women are different. The question is, do they remain the same after the fall? We see, even after the fall in the rest of the Old Testament and the New, that the men are continuing to take the lead, but also as we take the lead, we are to bear the chief responsibility in the decisions that we make. And the women are to be fitting partners in God's mission, whether it be it in the family or in the church. And so, for example, the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, he commands the husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honour to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. He says also to wives, Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So this is the word of God. It's true in the both Old and New Testament. But if you are still confused or you want to find out more about this topic, we, we cannot cover everything in this sermon. But Dr. Claire Smith, who is the wife of my Bible college lecturer, Rob Smith, who incidentally is part of EMU Music, well, she has wrote this helpful book. It's titled God's Good Design. And in this book, Claire explores in detail seven key Bible passages on manhood and womanhood. Passages like Genesis 1-3, to Proverbs 31, Ephesians 5, and 1 Timothy 2. And I recommend that you should get a copy of this, either physically or as an e-book. And maybe over the Chinese New Year, you know, the, where you're visiting, you're bored, take it out and read. And uh, it might also open up opportunities for you to share the gospel. I don't know. Next, we also, and finally, we look at men and women in relation to creation. As servants and protectors of God's creation, we are called to work or to serve as stewards to represent God and creation. We are also to guard it from the corruption brought about by the evil one. And therefore, the Church of Jesus Christ does need to get serious about creation care. Some of us may hear it from children who are going to children's church, but it should also be something that adults care about as well, creation care. Right? And as Pastor Chris mentioned, uh, in the coming weeks we'll be rolling out, we're trying to cut down on the bulletins that we print and explore other measures as well to be good stewards of God's creation. Although this present heavens and earth will be renewed at the Lord's return, this doesn't excuse us from treasuring God's word now as his protectors. In my first job, I was working as a civil engineer, and so I remember the day that I got my driving license, my boss handed me a key. Right? So I got a Nissan pickup to drive. And the boss opened up the hood and taught me how to check the engine oil and the tires weekly. One day though, I did that diligently, but one day this indicator light lit up on the dashboard. And I somehow couldn't find the owner's manual. Right, because the vehicle was just too old and was passed down from person to person in the company. And so I decided to ignore the indicator light. A month later, while I was on the ECP driving towards AYE, there was a huge explosion. 
and the pickup came to a halt on the slope actually. Right in morning rush hour traffic, the mechanic came and had to tow the pickup away. And later, we learned that the indicator light was important. The oil pressure system was faulty and it had caused the engine to blow. If I had brought it in for servicing earlier when I saw the warning lights, it would have been avoided. But I ignored, I ignored it. I chose to disobey the manual, if I can find it. But now it's so easy today to find instruction manuals online and in books and to see our identity and roles from the world around us. But for us human beings, the Bible alone is the maker's manual. It tells us of God's perfect will and purpose for our being and in our relationships. Many of us also neglect God's clear instructions to us in His Word, or we choose to ignore the constant warning signs that all is not well. This is all to our own detriment. You and I may have already broken all or some of God's instructions. You may have been rejecting God's rightful rule over you all your life. But there is still grace for us in Christ. See, I didn't finish my story. In that story, my boss didn't ask me to pay for the busted engine. Because in his great mercy towards me, he knew that a young graduate engineer couldn't afford a few thousand dollars for the repair. So he covered the repair cost for me. And I am to this day eternally grateful. God has also paid the restoration price for us to repair us broken people. Jesus' blood on the cross was the ransom price for our rebellion. So let us see God's goodness towards us. Let us receive His grace in Christ Jesus and let us obey His instructions for us in His Word. Let's go to God in prayer. Father God, we are sorry for how we've forgotten how you have always been so good and generous to us. And you created us as men and women to be gospel partners in your good mission. Sorry that we have continually failed to recognize your goodness and so we reject your creation purposes for us. Help us to see your goodness to us as men and women, the goodness of men as God's serving rulers and the goodness of women as fitting partners in this gospel ministry, that we might fulfill the chief end of humanity, which is to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. Amen.